Isn't it obvious when you see something that is right and good and experience the kingdom of God as it should be? Isn't it quite obvious when the many come together as one? And doesn't it stand out as something like shalom here on earth? Um, I pray that you get to experience that. I think that would be a great prayer for Vista, that this could be a place where people experience that place of rest and experience it as a place where many people come together as one to express in real ways the kingdom of God. I think that would be pretty good, <laughs> to say the least. I, think, I mean, it's like a major theme of scripture, the, the many coming together as one. Like from the first expression of the idea in Genesis chapter 2 where we hear it's not good for humans to be alone. All the way through Paul using the image of a body of believers coming together, even saying in Galatians that, listen, all these people from all these different walks of life coming together as one is like an actual miracle and this, we need to pay attention to this. And you can follow that throughout all the way to Revelation where people from all walks of life, every tribe and tongue, gather around giving their allegiance to Jesus, the one who makes one out of many. It's quite beautiful and frustratingly rare. It, it, it escapes us so easily. You can see it in scripture too, actually. Uh, not only do we see it's not good for human beings to be alone, but we see that first relationship that's given to us archetypally to be fractured right away. Adam and Eve are, well, Adam is ready to blame Eve for all the troubles, immediately splintering their relationship. And it spirals on downward where the family unit is under this extreme stress and fractures. Cain kills Abel. Not only that, but by the end of Genesis chapter 4, you have a guy named Lamech who kills somebody out of revenge, out of spite. And he says, you think Cain got revenge? I got 10 times as much revenge. He's singing a song about it, kids. He's approving his, of his own action, this violence. And, and by the time you get to Revel, or sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, we find out that the whole earth was full of violence. What had started with a relationship fracturing became a family fracturing, became a community fracturing, became the fracturing of humanity. And it spiraled out of control. It keeps going. After Noah, where we have this sort of refreshing moment, recreating the people, and yet his sons are fractured and divided. You follow this, this stream to Abram and Sarah, and it's not long after he's called to the promised land that he's trafficking his wife in Egypt. The fracturing, the way that many were supposed to be one, and keeps coming up against this brokenness. Abram and Lot split over having too much stuff. Abram and Isaac. I note this. We have zero accounts of Abram and Isaac interacting after the sacrificial moment on Mount Moriah. Perhaps Isaac was very hurt. Perhaps he was. Keep going, Jacob and Esau. Keep going, Joseph and his brothers. This fracturing, we know that the many were supposed to come together as one to more fully reflect the flourishing image of God into creation. And it was an uphill battle. What Pastor Mike likes to call going up a down escalator. But here we have them in Egypt. God 
brought this together for good, even though it was born out of pain, he brought it together for good, and they, they were safe for a while in Egypt and had enough together in Egypt. But what was happening in Egypt? The empire's imagination about what community ought to look like included oppression of the people of Israel. We might say othering them, right? The people of Israel had begun to flourish, and this sparked fear in the empire of Egypt. And so they said, what can we do to suppress their flourishing? That, in their imagination, would lead to their own flourishing. You have them forcing labor upon them, abuse, crushing labor, where they up the quotas and, and take away materials. And of course, very famously, this is expressed in chapter two of Exodus. When you see the order go out, that the Hebrew male children ought to be killed. You have this fracturing of the way many are supposed to come together. You have the empire's imagination saying, for us to flourish, we have to crush someone else. This command that first went to the Hebrew midwives, and by the way, was rejected by the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, who stood up to the might of the empire. They stood tall in front of Pharaoh and said, no, we won't will only contribute to the human flourishing. Your vision isn't the vision we have for humanity. And they said, no. So Pharaoh, undeterred in his desire to fracture and crush the people of Israel, said, okay, I'll just put the, I'll just put the, the law out to the rest of the land then and say that the, that the children of Israel, the males, should be thrown into the Nile. Lo and behold... It's out of the Nile that Moses is drawn. In fact, that's what his name means. You see how God is so insistent on bringing life out of death and how he's so insistent on bringing people together and how he just is persistent about it? Well, even Moses had a challenge on his hands. Though he was raised by Hebrew women, perhaps his mom, actually, He's then also steeped in the imagination of the empire. I want to call your attention to a run of verses here that are a little bit startling, where we get a sense that there's a battle going on for Moses, for his allegiance, for his imagination. This run of verses starts in chapter 2, verse 11. All right, and we're just going to kind of note something really quickly. First of all, in verse 11, we see Moses is identifying with the people of Israel, he is a Hebrew, and he goes out, and of course, he sees this crushing, the way the empire is crushing his people, and his response, his limited imagination is that problem-solving will include killing someone else, that the, that the roadblock between here and flourishing was the death of this Egyptian person. That's what had his imagination, and that's what he did in verse 12. He killed the Egyptian. Well, we can see that this truly is an expression of the empire's imagination, because what does Pharaoh want to do upon hearing about Moses killing the Egyptian slave master? Pharaoh tries to kill Moses. And Moses is on the run. And he heads out into the desert. And when he gets there, gets to a well where water is being drawn out, by the way. We get to verse 19. And the people that he rescues identify him in a certain way a startling way. 
he's identified as an Egyptian. There is this way that there was a battle going on for his imagination, for where he would place his hopes, for what his vision for flourishing would be like. Would it be like the God of Israel that brings things to life, that orders things so there can be flourishing? Or would it be like the imagination of the Egyptians that says, I will achieve my own good at the expense of others? We have to, we have to imagine this. We have to know this. This is what Moses was finding out. He was being discipled all along. Every moment of his life, he was being discipled. Some of those moments were the Hebrew women who raised him, where he was being discipled and steeped in the old stories of what it would look like to follow after the one true God. But the truth is, he was also being discipled by the house of Pharaoh. And there are moments in Moses' life where his imagination was swayed towards this idea that violence can bring about life. That, that, that violence is a tool, if only given to the right hands, could then be leveraged to bring about something flourishing. He was being discipled. We are always becoming. We are always being formed. There is always a vision trying to capture our imagination. Here in the church, we bend towards the scriptures, and we bend towards the one the scriptures point to. We bend towards Jesus. May he baptize our imaginations. But that's not the only voice. There's still a snake in the garden, kids, still whispering in our ears about what the good life looks like. We are still being discipled when we walk out the door this morning. We are still being formed when we flip on the television, when we pick up the book, when we have the conversation. We're always being formed. The key then is to place ourselves forcefully and frequently in the path and the presence of that which will rightly form you. Eschewing the empire and embracing the kingdom. And I hope you'll be okay with me making that distinction. Because the kingdom of God is certainly nothing like an empire. And the spirit of God leads us in the way of Jesus. Here's the truth that Moses didn't always understand. Life, the life that we are, or maybe I should say ought to be looking for, will never come at the expense of someone else. The good life, the good life that we ought to be seeking after, actually, will never come at the expense of someone else. And this is what God brought his people out into the desert to talk about, to have a father-child chat, as we've talked about. As we get to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, in the first part of it, we realize he's saying, listen, I want to set you apart. I want you to have a different imagination. I want you to have a different understanding about the way this will go and what the good life even looks like. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests for me. You're going to lead other people to the presence, the presence that can rightly form them. And it's here at Mount Sinai that we get the Ten Commandments. Or perhaps we should pause and say the Ten Commandments, which are these sayings that are about a vision of how the many will become one. It's in the context of a covenant of people. Relationship is shot through the whole thing. 
relationship with the one true God, and relationship with a community that will concretely express what it looks like to follow that one true God. They will become one. It's a vision for how they will demonstrate to the world what the character of the one true God is like, where true human flourishing can be found and can be cultivated. They have this chance to, to, to participate with God in regrowing the garden and pressing out the borders of that garden so that more and more people can flourish, expressing the beauty of this vision of the kingdom. And one of those commandments, the sixth one, is thou shalt not murder. The King James says thou shalt not kill, but alas, the translation is not great. The word here is murder or manslaughter, um, purposely killing and doing it outside of the law. Uh, in fact, the truth is, the Hebrew here is only two words. It just says, not murder. <laughs> so either we're done already, <laughs> because it's pretty obvious, not murder. You know, just tell yourself, not murder. Whatever else is the solution, not murder is, <laughs> you know. Either we're done already, or we have the rest of our lives to think about this. I think it's probably the latter. <laughs> I think we have the rest of our lives to think about this, what it means to follow after the God who says, thou shalt not murder. Because, I mean, the truth is, children don't grow up to say, I want to be a murderer when I grow up. They didn't plan it. You might say they were formed in it, little by little, slouching in that direction. Actually, statistically speaking, if we're being honest, those that end up do committing murder, the vast majority of them don't wake up with a plan to do so. They do not decide ahead of time. It is an expression of their imaginations of what they think will be the way forward. In a sense, it comes out of them, not something they decided to put in them. That has to have our attention. It has to have our attention. It can't be that we're done when we say not murder because, well, that wouldn't set us apart. And God said in Exodus 19 that he was looking to set us apart. So we got to keep going. We got to confess that there are plenty of ways to contribute to death that don't involve murder. In fact, there are all kinds of deaths that aren't even physical. You think about the deaths that we might find ourselves complicit in. Just the other night, I was recalling how I contributed to the death of one of my basketball players' playing careers. I coached him too hard. His name is Chris. He was okay at basketball. He was pretty good. And I coached him real hard because I was an Indiana fan growing up. And I was steeped in it. I was steeped in it, right? I was formed by, like, this is what coaching looks like. Promise you. And so when I got the whistle, I blew it real hard a lot. And you know what he did at the end of that year? Quit. He was done. Maybe a nominal death, but a death nonetheless. How many relationships have a crossword contributed to the death of? How many families fractured? How many communities split? 
How many times have we contributed, contributed to these small deaths when adhering to a false religion, a false religion that is hypocritical and grasps at leisure and refuses to extend rest to the rest of our brothers and sisters? This kind of false religion that inoculates people against true religion. True religion, which James says is about taking care of widows and orphans. And people can't recognize it when they see it because they had this death injected into them. And they thought, religion is this. It's hypocritical. It's, it's kind of oppressive. It's, it, it contributed to the death of my self-esteem. It did all these things. And they, then they couldn't recognize true life when it came. I think as a church, we're going to have to wrestle with that. There's got to be something to do. But what? What can be done in the face of such a daunting task of reversing the course of the fracturing of humanity? Well, I suggest maybe there are four things. Uh, and most of them simply come down to just follow Jesus, wherever he leads, and whatever he tells you to say what he tells you to do with these hands of yours. But let's go through them anyway, <laughs> right? Let's, let's press on beyond the not murder <laughs> part and press into the idea that there are systems that we contribute to and conversations that have undermined the well-being and dignity of the people around us. Let's keep going. First, let's agree with God that all are made in his image and are therefore of immense value. You actually don't have to go very far in scripture to get there. 26 verses in, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, you have this universal, this universal, that God made human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. And here's what's radical about that. People in the ancient world thought that way, they thought that way, but they thought that way about one person, the king, or in this case, the pharaoh. Pharaoh was made in the image of Ra, of the god. The radical thing here is it's being universalized. Every soul you meet, every person in the airport, every fumbling person in the line at the grocery store, whoever cut you off this morning, all of those people are image bearers. It's universal. In fact, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, Scripture is leveraging this as an argument not to kill. Why not kill? Well, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. In a sense, violence begets violence. It spirals out of control. And we're being called to be the ones who put a stop to it, to break the chain of violence. And here's what it says next. For in the image of God, has God made mankind? Listen, that might not sound that radical to us because that's a part of our ethos, not just in the church, but elsewhere too. At least equality is. But let me just tell you that equality is easy to argue for. But people could be equally without value. And that's the opposite of what's being said here. People are equally, immensely valuable to the God who formed them. Not just out of the dust, but in their mother's wombs, according to Psalm 139. 
So we press on forward with the ethos that says every person I come into contact with bears the image of the God I purport to love. How radical would that be if impressed upon my own actions on a daily basis? I suggest this exercise. Next time you're walking through a crowded space, look each person in the eye and think to yourself, there goes another image bearer. Think what might change. Think about how radical that might be if the crowd was full of people from other walks of life and other areas of the world and, and other these are tax brackets. Imagine how that might actually do more than simply break the chain of violence, but actually might press forward with something positive. Yes, first, agree with God that all are made in his image. The second thing is this, and it's the more searching thing. Recognize that murder is, in the end, a symptom. It's the end result of a long, slow march of sin. And that there are kinds of deaths that I've been harboring in my heart since I was a child. Sometimes expressed in competition, sometimes expressed in trying to win the girl and how that other guy might also want to win the same girl. And these ways that I harbored things in my heart that grown to their full height would be disastrous. I have to recognize that murder is the symptom it's the result of a long, slow march of sin. Can I read a quote to you from Lewis, if you wouldn't mind? This one wakes me up sometimes at night. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself, as I am doing this morning and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no le you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Here he says, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Murder is a symptom that starts a long way back. I think if we looked at the word hell and took it out and put murder in there, we could say murder begins with a grumbling mood. Could we not? Can I recognize, like Jesus asks us to in Matthew 5, that that grumbling mood has no place at the altar? That that grumbling mood has no place in relationship with the people that he made in his image? And may I, at that point, set aside my grumbling mood, set aside my offering, and go and seek out the one my soul is grumbling against and be reconciled. Maybe in that moment, life could come out of the death that had been festering in my soul. In fact, this is exactly how Jesus organizes the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is these sort of triplicate statements ending with what many scholars call a transformative initiative. For in this case, you would say, you have heard it said, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. But I'm telling you, if you're harboring hate in your heart, you're already guilty. Therefore, go and be reconciled. He's saying, 
in this moment. Follow the spirit. Follow the imagination of the kingdom rather than the imagination of the empire. Follow the imagination of the kingdom into reconciliation. Do more than break the chain of violence. Bring life out of death. That's what Jesus calls for. Three, understand that alignment with Christ is not seen only in what we avoid doing, but what we proactively and purposefully do. Part of the stunted imagination of the church sometimes is to say, here's how I express that me and Jesus are good. I don't say certain words. And I don't ingest certain substances. That's how you know I'm on the right path. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is actually calling for something much, much more proactive than that. A breathing of life into the dead spaces of our world. Let's see how Paul describes it when he describes the miracle of the many coming together as one in Romans chapter 12. And listen for how proactive it is, how he has a vision, this murderer Paul, has a vision for bringing life out of death. He says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. An expression that is most fully put on display by Jesus, who in Philippians did not take equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but leveraged it for the good of the world. Later in that same passage, Paul says, yes, thinking others as better than yourself. Proactive, small moments. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord positively. Be joyful in hope. Joy has to be cultivated. If anger can be cultivated, so can joy. Let's put to rest the anger that would grab a hold of us and grab a hold instead of the joy that would set us free. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Like literally actively do that. <laughs> Somehow. Is there someone at work who's just on your last nerve? Bring them their favorite coffee drink on Monday. Well, don't do it Monday. Do it Tuesday. Don't go anywhere tomorrow. Unless it's to a barbecue. Bless and do not curse. Don't contribute to death. Don't. Bless. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. There are many of you. Come together as one. Do not be proud, but be, but be willing to associate with people of low position. They're all image bearers. Don't contribute to the death that they feel on a daily basis. Of, by the way, they're dismissed by the entirety of society. Speak out against it. They bear the image of the one you claim to love. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Just break that chain. Later, do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just a few sentences later, 
after talking about taxes for a little bit, Paul says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Maybe even suggesting that if my tax dollars can be used for the good of my neighbor, then I should be very glad to spend them. Contributing to life. What a joy. What a joy to bear his image that way. The life giver allows us to participate in giving life. What a joy. We do more than just break the chain of violence. We reverse the curse. We express it with our very lives. Here's the true pro-life ethic. More than just avoiding death, the truly pro-life ethic honors God by honoring the Imago Dei all around us and contributes to the flourishing that he is working for in the way he is working for it. That's a truly pro-life ethic. Joining in to the life with the life giver in the way he does it. There are these imaginations out there that says violence can be redemptive. We can participate with the empire when practicalities call for it. But Jesus is saying, no, this is the way. In fact, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's this. It looks exactly like this. Follow him out of Egypt. And get this, follow him into Canaan. <laughs> they were coming out of the frying pan and into the fire, these Israelites, weren't they? This is why he's so on about it. This is why God is so insistent. Listen, you have to grab a hold of this way of life. It's exactly what Deuteronomy 30 is saying. Start in verse 11 later today and read it. Moses says, I put before you the way of life and the way of death. Take hold of the way of life. Take hold of it. Let it capture your imagination. What does Jesus have to say about this truly pro-life ethic? Matthew 25. He says, here's the real joy of it. In honoring the image of God in others, a drink for the one who's thirsty, food for the one who's starving, even visiting someone in prison, welcoming the stranger, that which the empire says to negate, he says to welcome. He says, this is what life looks like. And I promise you, you get to experience Jesus more in those moments than maybe any other. I like to think of it as this kind of Jesus nexus. Jesus says, whatever you did for those people, you did for me. So you're honoring Jesus but at the same time, you get to experience Jesus. There's this transforming thing that happens. So let's take as many opportunities as we can to be immersed in that kind of life, immersed in that kind of spirit. So four, we immerse ourselves in the spirit of Christ in order to take on the attributes of the one who gathered in the many and caused them to become one community. You've watched The Chosen, maybe. You notice how they're coming from different angles of life. They're not all that comfortable with the ideas Jesus has about who should be welcome to follow him. Out of these many, Jesus creates one. He puts it as the prologue of his most magisterial teachings. Matthew 5 has all these wonderful transformative initiatives, these ways to bring life out of death. 
these ways to do more than just not murder. These ways to join in with him. But he starts with this, a posture. A posture, the Beatitudes, we call them. Listen to this and think about who it reminds you of and how it doesn't remind you of Pharaoh, not at all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Maybe that's up and against those who take revenge. That only just occurred to me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a proactive kind of righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, the pax facere in the Latin. That's where we get the word pacifism. For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I don't know who you thought of, but I know the person you thought of was a life giver. Maybe it was Jesus. Or maybe it was someone who's been following after Jesus for quite some time, steeped in his ways, formed by his words, obedient and allegiant to his sacrificial style of love, and joyfully celebrating their citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I think whoever you thought of has been breathing life into dead spaces all the while. Maybe you've had the privilege of experiencing that yourself. I pray that we can do that for each other. And then we can carry that same spirit, a spirit that raised him from the dead, out with us as we go, out into the spaces that would like to disciple us, and where we might say, no, I've already got one of those. I've already got a spirit that's leading me. I don't really need yours. The spirit of this age doesn't do it for me. I follow the spirit that brings life out of dead things. Let's pray. Lord, not only do we love you, we like you. Like, you just give us really beautiful gifts. You are astounding the way that you want us to flourish and how we keep fumbling the ball right at the goal line. And we just are so thankful for your persistent patience with us, calling us back into life life with you in the garden, life where true flourishing can happen. You are a life-giving God. We pray for eyes to see the ways that we can join you in bringing life. What a joy that would be. Lord, we pray all those things in your son's name. Amen.